This program features interviews with respected healthcare industry experts on current topics of substantial national importance. Your host for the program is David Intricasso, a DC-based healthcare policy analyst and researcher. We invite you to comment on the program by visiting thehealthcarepolicypodcast.com. Now, here's David. Welcome to the Healthcare Policy Podcast. I'm the host, David Intracasso. With me today is Georgetown history professor, Toshihiro Haguchi, to discuss his book, Political Fallout, Nuclear Weapons Testing and the Making of a Global Environmental Crisis. Professor Haguchi, welcome to the program. Thank you for having me. You're very welcome. Professor Haguchi's bio is, of course, posted on the podcast website. Briefly on background, listeners are likely aware the word Anthropocene has been used over the past 20 years to define the past two-plus centuries during which time man has come to shape the environment rather than vice versa. Our effect on the environment became significantly more pronounced beginning in the 1940s with the advent of the nuclear Anthropocene, the topic of Professor Higuchi's volume. As he explains in the introduction of his 2020 work, from 1945 to 1963, when the Partial Test Ban Treaty was signed by the U.S., the Soviet Union, and Britain, these three nations conducted over 450 nuclear weapons tests, equal to 26,000 Hiroshima-sized bombs, that caused worldwide nuclear fallout or radioactive contamination. Though in small concentrations, radioactive particles from atmospheric nuclear tests are still present around the world. How and why the 63 Partial Test Ban Treaty, signed by the U.S., Soviet Union, and Britain, came into effect remains important. Among other reasons, this past August, the U.N. Secretary General concluded the world has entered, quote-unquote, a time of nuclear danger not seen since the height of the Cold War that led to, two weeks ago, the Science and Security Board of the Bulletin of Atomic Scientists forwarded its doomsday clock to 90 seconds to midnight. The clock has moved forward 4 minutes and 30 seconds since 2010. This history is also important because it potentially offers lessons regarding how we address the climate crisis, or call it the greenhouse gas Anthropocene. With me to discuss all this is again Georgetown Professor Higuchi. So with that, uh, Professor, uh, let me start by asking you, since you note this in your preface, and see if I could pronounce this word correctly, you note uh, the reality and the word Again, if I'm pronouncing correctly, is Hibakusha? Yes, Hibakusha, yes. Okay, Hibakusha. Can you explain what that is? I think it would be important for listeners to start out knowing. Sure. Uh, Hibakusha is a Japanese term to basically describe the atomic bomb survivors. Uh, the, uh, I, I mentioned the Hibakusha because I think uh, now I look back and then think about where my research interest in uh, the uh, global health and the environmental effects of the uh, nuclear weapons testing came from. I, I think I remember when I was a kid, I ran into some of these hibakushas. Now, I did not actually meet them in person, but uh, I met them in a little illustrated book uh, where basically I, as a kid, I was shocked to see what the old 
atomic bomb survivors in Hiroshima and Nagasaki went through. And then that really uh, sparked my, well, fear about living in the nuclear age, but also really um, long-term fascination with um, anything nuclear. Um, So I think that's the... uh, the beginning of my uh, scholarly interest in nuclear affairs. Okay, thank you, thank you, Hibukusha. So let's go on. Um, just so I uh, have a uh, everyone understands, I, I just to ask you this uh, again, another preliminary question, such that listeners are clear. What generally and briefly, what what is radioactive fallout? Mm-hmm. Radioactive fallout, uh, the radioactive substances uh, basically released at the time of a nuclear explosion. Now, uh, we saw only two instances in human history where nuclear weapons were used directly against humans. Mm -hmm. Of course, that is the Hiroshima and Nagasaki that I just mentioned. But actually, we also tested, detonated, actually, uh, hundreds of nuclear weapons uh, above ground, in the water, and underground. Now, if you, ex- uh, if you detonate a nuclear weapon or device uh, in the atmosphere, the, uh, you, you may know the uh, kind of iconic image of mushroom cloud. Right. And then the, uh, that mushroom cloud actually is highly radioactive. Because of the, uh, uh, the, uh, the byproducts of the uh, nuclear fission uh, and the fusion uh, reactions. Uh, so the, uh, that, of course, emits enormous amount of energy that destroys everything you know, within a certain kind of range. But also that also creates a massive amount of radioactive substances that actually uh, spread through the atmosphere and the, in the water, in large area, uh, downwind usually, but often as far as around the world. So the, uh, that uh, kind of uh, radioactive debris and then gases uh, are called radioactive fallout. Okay, thank you. Uh, I do want to level set with that. So let's go into more of the details of, of your book. Again, these are uh, first few questions here are very straightforward. Although you provide a good deal of detail uh, relative to the, t- the the amount of testing, and again, I noted 460-plus uh, weapons were tested over this 18-year period. Um, can you summarize how concerns regarded nu- nuclear weapons tests in an open environment became known? And probably most famously, you discussed the 54 Castle Bravo test in New Mexico, that led to contamination of tuna that Japanese fishermen at the time of the explosion were actually catching. So again, how did this? How did nuclear weapons follow up initially become known? And of course, it became increasingly known, obviously through the fifties. Mm-hmm. Yes. Yeah, so actually, some people were aware that wherever you detonate a nuclear weapon anywhere around the world, actually you can catch a kind of a radioactive traces of that explosion. Uh, even 
when the United States tested its atomic bomb for the first time, actually, in the uh, desert of New Mexico, Mexico. Uh, in 1945, yes. Um, the, uh, actually, there are some instances, uh, suspicious kind of instances. Obviously, the test itself was secret until later, uh, the end of the war. But uh, still, actually, that left a lot of kind of a radioactive traces in Geiger counter and then other kind of radio-sensitive materials. So, so actually, some people were aware that the actually uh, nuclear explosion would release uh, kind of radioactive substances that could be detected around the world. Uh, now, though, the question was whether or not that that was harmful. So the uh, that was the question, and then that was a kind of a, a up for the debate because the uh, kind of a um, the, um, the amount of radioactive substances, right, are coming from nuclear weapons testing in the absolute scale, like you said, is uh, humongous. Uh, it's like really a lot. But precisely because the, uh, much of the radioactive fallout spread thinly around the world. So the, uh, actually the amount of radio, radiation exposure that the, uh, every one of us has because of the radioactive fora was and still is quite small. So the uh, uh, we are talking about really a low-level radiation exposure, not the kind of acute radiation exposure that really killed many people in Hiroshima and Nagasaki. So, so that actually raised a lot of questions whether or not this global radioactive contamination uh, was actually harmful to humans. Now, this um, idea of harm really came um, in reaction to the kind of 1954 uh, uh, U.S. hydrogen bomb test. Uh, it's called the uh, Castle Bravo test mm-hmm. in 1954, conducted in the middle of the Pacific. Uh, it's called the Marshall Islands, uh, the uh, Bikini Atoll. The... Uh, Basically, uh, this massive kind of a thermonuclear explosion uh, basically uh, produced a massive, again, amount of radioactive fallout that actually fell onto uh, uh, many um, American personnel, but also uh, engaged in testing activities, but also uh, Marshallese islanders uh, uh, downwind, as well as the uh, uh, fishing crew of the uh, one Japanese uh, tuna boat called Lucky Dragon. So the uh, uh, really this uh, um, radiation exposure incident really uh, made the potential dangers of radioactive fallout and its enduring uh, large-scale contamination uh, known to the world. And so uh, that was really the beginning of the uh, growing awareness of the uh, this uh, uh, global environmental problem. Yeah. yeah, so the first test, as you referenced, that was the Trinity test in 45, and then a month later, literally uh, in August, is the first bomb that we used, uh, Hiroshima. Um, the, the, the phrase is atomic bomb tuna that became coined subsequent to Castle Bravo. You noted the power of that 
a Castle Bravo bomb was 1,000 times the force I read in your book of Hiroshima. So obviously a very powerful weapon that they detonated. And then, of course, not only was fish, over time the Japanese became increasingly concerned that it was not just limited to uh, marine life, but radioactive rainwater, rice, vegetables, fruits, various foodstuffs over time as the, as the learning curve increased. The Americans, the American government originally, initially didn't think, and I, I found this interesting in your volume, initially they didn't think, particularly New Mexico, there would be any exposed populations. Of course, there were, there were remote ranches, etc., indigenous populations, particularly the British when they tested on an, on islands off of Australia, there were populations, and then after they after fully realizing there were populations, they denied that there was any problem, um, and then uh, then the then the response was, well, it's not the concentration is is insufficient to cause any any health harm, and then eventually we get to the point where there's a realization that the distribution of radioactive materials is very unevenly distributed, and in some places it actually is or can be harmful. So that's the progression. But let me move on. And you do discuss, you, you, you break your down your discussions between how the U.S. are handling or managing this issue, their weapons testing, how, how the British are doing it, and then how the Soviets, the, the Soviets and the former Soviet Union are handling uh, their testing. Let's just stay with how the Americans are handling it. And as, as, as you read, read through the volume, you discuss... There's a National Academy of Science uh, study, and it creates this uh, acronym BEAR, the Bioeffects and Atomic Radiation Group. But what was the progression of the American understanding at the science level um, through the 50s? Mm-hmm. Um, so as I uh, mentioned earlier, so the uh, really the question was whether or not global that light radioactive contamination was harmful. And then here, the, uh, what was crucial uh, was really uh, genetic knowledge. Yes, the, yes. Uh, so the, uh, uh, the, uh, again, we are, we are talking about the amount of radiation that is so small that that would not really cause immediate body reaction. Mm-hmm. Uh, so the uh, uh, but it doesn't mean that it did not really uh, uh, affect any change. Actually, uh, 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 the uh, there was idea uh, that no matter how small in amount, radiation exposure may result in a kind of a damage in proportion uh, to the uh, dose uh, actually received. So it's called the uh, linear non-threshold uh, hypothesis, which is actually a kind of a hypothesis that today, uh, still today, actually, radiation protection community is using. So the, uh, uh, that's kind of idea. Now, uh, at that time, that idea was applied to understanding genetic damage. Now, the, uh, uh, this genetic perspective was crucial because of the, uh, again, the paradox of scale. Uh, uh, you know, the, uh, the contamination was so vast and then so enduring that paradoxically the uh, risk 
uh, health risk to any particular individual was excessively small. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so that's why uh, few people actually cared about the、uh, growing but slight radioactive contamination around them at the time when nuclear testing was going on. Now, geneticists came in through the、uh, scientific committees that you just mentioned and、uh, in the public forums, basically saying that although the、uh, risk To any particular individual, it might be excessively small, but still it adds up、um, in a sense that the、uh, millions, if not billions, of people living on this planet,、uh, present and the future, may be exposed to this tiny amount of radiation. But based on the, uh, uh, the, uh, the proposition that I just explained,、uh, linear uh, uh, you know, non threshold hypothesis, that means that we would statistically expect some casualties, some instances of genetic defects. So, the, uh, uh, given the,、uh, we are talking about the world population uh, today, uh, uh, at present, and in the future, So, the,、uh, that actually worried、uh, many scientists. So, that kind of uh, uh, change of scale in up, kind of comprehending kind of a magnitude of possible health effects was really crucial. So, that's the kind of job that the scientific committees did, meaning that it's not so much about individual harm, which was Relatively small, of course, compared to other kinds of harms. But still, actually, we should worry about the ultimate consequences of these kinds of pollutants precisely because of its cumulative and then、uh, population、uh, impact. So that's the way how scientists actually changed the way how we understood this kind of large scale, slow moving.、Uh, Environmental disaster. Thank, thank you again. There's the genetic, as you just discussed, there's the genetic mutation issue or concern. And then、uh, the other was the debate between the American and the British scientists that you discuss in the volume relative to、uh, the extent to which、uh, there was cancer risk supposed.、Uh, so that was another f- facet here. But let me get to.、Um, uh, Sort of your framework here in this discussion.、Uh, so, these questions were more just sort of the description of, of your discussion in your volume. But since this is a policy podcast, inter- I was very interested in, in how you frame this discussion because obviously there's, there's several facets to it. There's, of course, there's the exposure, there's the、uh, human health consequences, there's certainly the politics you discuss, for example, Eisenhower and his. his Uh, opponent two times, Adlai Stevenson,、uh, et cetera.、Um, but you, d- you discuss this、um, in framing your discussion, you name- namely determine the biological effects, again, the social acceptability and the policy implications of nuclear testing,、uh, radioactive contamination. Under this phrase, you term the politics of risk. So, again, you use that phrase to frame. Could you help? You know, I, I think it's very useful, again, this being a policy discussion. How, how, could you explain、um, 
this framework uh, for the listener. Mm-hmm. Uh, thank you. Yes. So when, when it comes to the environmental problem or public health problem, we, we tend to think that the, that's a um, scientific or technical problem. And uh, to a large extent, it's true. The, uh, we need science. We need we need technology to address uh, the problem. And so the problem is that the kind of uh, hazard that we are talking about is not really self-evident. And then the most important, actually, question asked in the episode of Global Radioactive Fallout was not even say, scientific or technical. Uh, the, uh, actually, um, well, first of all, again, because of the sheer spatial and the temporal scale of radioactive fallout, just the, uh, there was no really direct causal relationship we could establish. Right? Mm-hmm. The, uh, we, can, we can obviously speculate the uh, possible consequences of contamination, especially in light of its impact on the uh, whole humanity. So the, uh, so we can do that. But, uh, you know, let's say there's no victim that you can clearly attribute to the effects of radioactive fallout. Uh, I'm talking about global radioactive right, fallout, right. not local right. fallout, which, of course, claims many casualties. That's uh, no doubt about it. But when it comes to global scale radioactive contamination, that you don't have any clear uh, victims, so to speak. So the uh, so so that that means that first, so science is necessary to start asking questions about the possible hazards, but that science is not uh, uh, sufficient uh, to even uh, how to make sense of this kind of situation. So the, uh, uh, it's because the uh, uh, global contamination uh, raises questions, not just about the ultimate biological effects, but then the, uh, whether or not society and the individuals would accept any even theoretical risks imposed on them. And then so here... The idea is that the uh, radioactive fallout is not a natural disaster. So it raises a question of culpability, blame, and then accountability. So the, uh, that is a question that is beyond just the uh, quantitative magnitude of the hazard. So that's why social acceptability was a key part of this uh, uh, controversy, fallout controversy. And then finally, the uh, uh, whatever conclusion you may draw from, you know, scientific evidence and on radioactive fallout, um, now that would inevitably support or actually undermine the case uh, for a nuclear test ban. So the uh, um, this so-called scientific technical discussion of fallout hazards could not be separated from the larger controversy over the uh, nuclear weapons, their role in world peace, 
and then uh, nuclear disarmament. So that's why policy implications were part of this uh, discussion, even when they strictly talked about, let's say, like a biological effect, uh, because uh, whatever conclusions actually drawn from that actually inevitably just uh, push the uh, uh, debate either in favor of the nuclear test ban or actually against that kind of a measure. So the so what I tried to achieve in the book was to look at the complex relationship between science and then policy making under the condition of uncertainty and the ambiguity in the context of the Anthropocene. Again, Anthropocene was very crucial because of the paradox of scale. As I said, you know, the larger the contamination became, actually the less certain mm-hmm. we are about its ultimate biological effect. But then precisely because of this scale, that raised a really compelling question about social acceptability, because the, uh, we are talking about very, very diverse populations around the world. And then the, uh, uh, you can imagine, we can imagine that how controversial it must have been because the, uh, so many people have very different ideas about risks as well as kind of uh, public health measures taken to combat these risks. Now, especially after the COVID situation, like I think we know it. Right. So, but now uh, we are talking about the human-made, truly global uh, situation. So that really uh, made uh, for that such a controversial issue. All right, thank you for that. I I did appreciate the phrase you'd used, and you might have been quoting somebody, but you said that, uh, you know, the Anthropocene and it's a global issue, that the increasing view over time in this discussion was we must assay the world, not our own backyard. So I I thought that phrase was uh, very helpful, useful. So we – so – I, I need to ask you on point. We do. We do finally. The volume finally gets to uh, the UN. It's August 1963. The three parties, 70 representatives, I think you know from the three parties, U.S., Soviet, and British officials, uh, signed this partial uh, test ban treaty, the PTBT, uh, again in August 63. The Soviets, as you explained, actually were. Um, I'd say it's fair to say ahead of the other two countries, there, there had been a moratorium leading up to 63. Interestingly, I think, as I recall in reading, the Soviets broke that, uh, but that they were really strongly supportive of getting to a, a partial test ban treaty. Explain to me how ultimately that was achieved. Mm-hmm. The, uh, the Soviet Union had a variety of reasons why it constantly pushed for the uh, uh, test ban. The war was very strategic. Uh, After all, the Soviet Union came late to this nuclear game behind the United States. So the the idea was actually, uh, you know, once the Soviet Union achieved minimum amount, what they thought, the minimum amount of deterrence, uh, uh, it was in their interest to actually stop the nuclear arms race. Because otherwise, the United States may actually widen the lead. So the uh, so it was very cold calculation actually. Now the second reason was more propaganda political. 
the uh, that was the Cold War was not just about the military competition. It was the uh, competition uh, to win the hearts and the minds of many people around the world. So the uh, the idea was that the Soviet Union wanted to uh, uh, present themselves uh, as a peace-loving country, uh, working for peace and a coexistence so that the uh, the Soviet Union uh, would win uh, world opinion, basically. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so the, uh, that was a, a, a kind of a, a Cold War kind of propaganda uh, front. The, uh, the third reason was something that actually really I found very interesting. Now, at that time in the Soviet Union, genetics as research was banned. Right. The, uh, uh, it was because of the uh, influence of the uh, uh, Soviet biologist named uh, Lysenko. And then uh, he basically proposed the non-genetic uh, theory of inheritance. Uh, basically, he argued that the uh, uh, chromosomes, and then now we know DNA in them, chromosomes were not the only uh, kind of uh, uh, entity that was involved in human inheritance. Now, now we are talking about epi- epigenetics you know, today, so the, uh, we, we have a much more like a comprehensive idea about how actually uh, inheritance actually functions. Mm-hmm. But then the, at that time, actually, the uh, uh, many geneticists thought that the, actually the chromosomes were the vehicles of inheritance. And then now, uh, Lysenko challenged this view. So the, uh, that was a scientific debate, but then the, uh, that came to be entangled with politics because the Lysenko and his supporters basically uh, tried to uh, win the support of the Soviet government against their scientific rivals. And then there was a lot of institutional politics going on within the scientific community. Now, as a result of all of this, the actually genetics, which provided the key piece of knowledge to even start conceiving the p- possible harmfulness of global radioactive contamination, as I explained right. earlier, right, uh, was missing in the Soviet Union. So the, uh, so the, actually the Kremlin had tough time explaining why actually we should ban nuclear weapons testing. Uh, of course, other than the uh, obvious arms control reasons. So the actually the uh, the uh, scientists who actually tried to uh, uh, bring genetics back uh, in the Soviet Union uh, tried to convince the Kremlin uh, that actually genetics would be the best way to actually emphasize the potential harm of radioactive fallout that would actually help the uh, the uh, Cold War propaganda. The, uh, so the uh, uh, so that's why like uh, so the Kremlin um, wanted to put the U.S. in the bad light, uh, so to speak, and uh, try to uh, avoid the uh, uh, you know self-defeating nuclear arms race. Uh, but also the scientists also wanted to uh, also uh, join this kind of propaganda uh, to actually fight back. Uh, against the pseudoscience of Lysenkoism. So the, uh, that, that's why the Soviets were unusually uh, eager 
to join this debate and then lead, uh, take the lead, so to speak. Yes, th- I appreciate you noting uh, uh, Lysenko, Trofim uh, Lysenko. Thank you. I, I do want to have time for, and I, I, as I noted in the in my intro, this subject potentially offers lessons regarding addressing our current Anthropocene uh, problem. Again, uh, greenhouse gas emissions, the climate crisis. So let me ask you this to speculate. Um, what are, what lessons do you think uh, the nuclear Anthropocene offers for our current uh, problem? Um, for example, um, you know the, the same issues are at play: the severity of, the social contentiousness of, the social acceptability of, policy implications, all those um, components that you note uh, in your politics of risk. So have you thought about analogizing your research and your model to our current crisis? That is a tough question uh, for a historian like me. <laughs> <laughs> the, uh, but uh, um, this uh, research actually uh, really uh, forced me to really think uh, critically about what's going on around us. Well, after all, one of the uh, reasons why I wrote this book was that usually we think that the uh, climate change, other kind of uh, global environmental problems, right, are, mm. are quite new. But a uh, historian's job is to tell everybody that there's nothing new under the sun. Right. <laughs> so, so the idea was uh, to extract some uh, useful lessons from one of the first human-made, uh, truly global environmental crisis mm-hmm. that was a radioactive fallout from nuclear weapons building. Now, as I said, there are a few striking differences as well as uh, similarities between uh, radioactive fallout and the climate change. Well, first difference, um, the uh, climate change comes from economy and the, our economic industrial uh, right. system. While radioactive fallout, at least in the context of uh, my book, that is a nuclear weapons testing, actually came from national security. And then, yeah, so there is a fundamental difference, obviously. And then that leads to the second difference, that is polluters, who who pollutes uh, the earth, so to speak. The when it comes to climate change, of course, everybody, basically uh, everybody who uses fossil fuel, and also depends on kind of agriculture and other things that emit the other kind of a green greenhouse gases. Yes, but but, uh, cer- so but the, certainly uh, more over developed countries, right? Right, exactly. Right. Yeah, that that's another thing. Yeah, yes, exactly. Everybody, but right, some countries, some people, some industries, way more right. uh, than others. Uh, that actually, yeah, leads me to the uh, kind of another uh, kind of similarity that I, uh, I'm going to touch in a minute okay. uh, in terms of the unevenness of this. But but nevertheless, we do see actually many, many, many polluters when it comes to climate change. Sure. Now, when it comes to fallout, actually, we have only a handful of states, the uh, United States, Britain, and the Soviet Union. And so the, uh, uh, although their contributions are enormous, but we can at least point out who actually pollutes uh, the uh, environment, right? In, uh, so that's 
the uh, the third thing is the uh, climate change is mainly the its effects are mainly uh, through the environment. Obviously, rising sea levels and then uh, acidification of the oceans and all kinds of obviously temperature changes, mm-hmm. extreme weather. Uh, when it comes to for that, it's mainly through human health, uh, like a uh, genetic damage and cancer. Uh, so, but but these the differences aside, like you said, there are striking similarities. You know, one important lesson from the uh, uh, fora is that the global environmental problem is simultaneously local problem. And then we have to go between the two scales simultaneously to really comprehend the totality of the problem. Now, as I said earlier, we have to climb up the ladder ladder of like knowledge so to speak to the global level through genetic knowledge to even start conceiving why a little bit tiny radiation exposure was harmful because the uh it, it's it's very uh non-consequential when if we just focus on a particular individual unless we look at the whole picture but the problem is if we stay on the global level, actually that leads us to overlook a striking unevenness, <laughs> unevenness in effects. Because as, as I, as you said, there are some people, some places and some food and drinks that were more radioactive than others. <laughs> the same thing can be said about climate change, right? The, of course, the effects of climate, I mean, the phenomenon of uh, climate change is truly planetary. So the, uh, there is no place that is escaped, of, <laughs> uh, you know, that escapes from the effects of the uh, climate change. But then the effects are so strikingly uneven from place to place, from populations to populations. So the, uh, that kind of understanding or that kind of breakdown of the global phenomenon into the kind of regional and the local kind of a scale actually is crucial to actually uh, to connect knowledge to action because unevenness in terms of impact actually raises a comparing question of justice, meaning that some people suffer much more than others. So that means that it's not like everybody's problem so that no one's problem. That is a problem of conceiving a problem as a global problem because it's everybody's problem, but it's very subtle in effect, so no one cares. But then now we have to really break down this kind of a global aggregate kind of a, a knowledge into much more like a fine-tuned local regional knowledge so that we know who is more at risk than others. And then that should compel policy action. And then that raises a lot of question of justice. So the, uh, I think that's a one lesson coming from radioactive fallout, precisely because there are some places and some food and some people who were more radioactive. And then those people actually uh, raised their voices against the uh, nuclear weapons testing. So that's the, uh, I, I think, the uh, one lesson. The second lesson is diplomacy, the power and the limits of diplomacy. I, I think the uh, uh, what's interesting 
is the uh, uh, the uh, sorry the uh, so the uh, successful environmental treaty requires the building of an ad hoc broad coalition of diverse actors and interests around the crossover policy issue. When we talk about climate change, we tend to focus on only climate change. Mm-hmm. But uh, actually, the way way we got the uh, partial test on treaty that stopped uh, global radioactive contamination was because the uh, the uh, policymakers and the other stakeholders actually approached the issue uh, from much more holistic uh, 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 perspective including the uh, uh, deduction of geopolitical tension as well as the uh, development of alternative technologies. So the, uh, so the, uh, uh, the actually diplomacy works when you bring in many different stakeholders and, uh, into this coalition. The problem is this approach simultaneously means that its success uh, tends to be very specific to that issue. <laughs> uh, because the, uh, uh, many people just jump on the same kind of wagon, so to speak, mm-hmm. of the partial test one treaty, but this kind of a coalition does not really stay together when it comes to another kind of a different issue involving different kind of interests and stake, stakeholders. So, so it is a kind of a ad hoc kind of a situation, uh, but, uh, it is important to really make sure that we bring in many people uh, into this kind of a diplomatic process. Uh, finally, actually, my uh, one of the most interesting findings uh, findings that I made actually in the book was the role of uh, so, so-called deniers. <laughs> we, we we tend to think that the uh, climate change deniers mm-hmm. just hampered. The progress towards the solution. And then the, uh, yes, that's true. But actually, um, we had also fora deniers, uh, back in the past. And then the, uh, what these deniers did was that eventually they never changed, by the way, they never changed their dismissive op- opinions about fora hazards. Mm-hmm. They really thought that the these are so inconsequential. But, it didn't matter because forward hazards became a political fact and social fact, if not the scientific fact. So that's why politics of risk is coming in here. <laughs> so that the, uh, actually these deniers, even these deniers, actually felt compelled to come up with their solutions. And then, the, uh, for example, some solutions are like gimmicks, like cream bombs. But uh, another kind of a solution was genuinely a uh, breakthrough. That was the uh, technique of uh, underground testing. So the uh, uh, actually, ironically, the uh, uh, the problem of radioactive fallout was solved not just because of the uh, coalition in support of a nuclear test ban, but also the uh, uh, their opponents who actually came up with a technological solution trying trying to avoid the uh, test ban, but they actually both came together and then actually produced a uh, uh, solution. 
So the, uh, I, I think, you know, when we think about climate change, we tend to think that the diplomatic solution, political solution, uh, of course, is crucial. But uh, we, we also need to pay attention to those who actually resist this process. Because they are sometimes like a, a, a very important impetus for the ultimate solution may actually come from these people. Um, so the, I, I think that's a kind of very paradoxical nature of the so-called solution uh, that actually sometimes comes uh, from the, uh, its opponents. You know, that's, that's very interesting. I'm going to have to listen to your answers several times. But this last point... Uh, role of deniers. I mean, I, I immediately thought of the whole effort, uh, to do carbon capture and storage. You know, in a sense, uh, the people who support that are de facto deniers because that's, that solution is largely argued by the oil and gas industry, right? Mm-hmm. It's not, it's not, it's not a banned solution. It's, it's, um, we're just gonna, we're gonna either underground test or we're gonna underground uh, greenhouse gases, same difference. So very, very interesting. Uh, I appreciate you noting that. Uh, but with that, um, uh, Professor Higuchi, we're at our time. Um, so I, I genuinely appreciate your, uh, your, your spending, uh, these minutes on this to some substance. Uh, very helpful, very useful. I, I do hope you pursue uh, my suggestion about, uh, pursue further. So your comments just now are very helpful as it relates to potential uh, parallels or lessons learned uh, uh, between these two issues. So with that, I'd like to say thank you again for your time. Thank you for your suggestion. And uh, I, uh, it was my pleasure joining you here. So thank you so much. You have just heard another edition of the Healthcare Policy Podcast hosted by David Intricasso. To comment on this program or others, to see information about upcoming interviews, to suggest a program topic, or to hear an archive program, please visit our website, thehealthcarepolicypodcast.com. Thank you for listening, and please listen again soon.